our guest today is Nick McKenzie. Nick's investigative reporting into the misconduct of Ben Robert Smith and other Australian SAS troops in Afghanistan resulted in the most significant defamation battle of at least a couple of decades. Last month, Judge Anthony Basenko found that Nine had successfully proved the truth of those allegations. Nick's book about Ben Robert Smith crossing the line is now on sale. Now, as we record this, there were still a few days left for Robert Smith to file an appeal, and there's still the possibility of separate criminal proceedings. So at times, we might need to choose our words with care. But first, Nick, welcome, and thank you for finding the time. And I want to start with a question which I genuinely want to know the answer to. Um, How are you doing after all this? I think I'm probably just starting to sort of emerge out of the you know, the sheer exhaustion and uh, adrenaline rush now. It's been a few weeks. Uh, it's been a, a very long five or six years. Uh, we were sued in 2018, and since then it's been continual legal and PR warfare. Um, it's pretty amazing to a scenario where you had you know, two media companies engaged in um, this battle. Now, for us, it was never about the fact that Channel uh, that Robert Smith worked for Channel Seven or Seven West Media, it was about allegations involving alleged war crimes, and we thought that was in, in the public interest, and we thought it was true, and we ascertained that, reported it, and he sued us. But the act of suing us inevitably meant that my company Nine, initially Fairfax Media, and then Nine uh, would have to come in behind me as they did very strongly, and Robert Smith was was very famously supported by Kerry Stokes funded by Kerry Stokes. And so um, there was a lot of pressure brought to bear there in the sort of media environment. Um, it was a really high stakes battle. And I think when you go through something like that, you spend quite a few years in sort of fight or flight mode. And for us, it was fight, 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 fight. Uh, and you don't really know what's going to happen until a judge rules. I mean, I was literally sitting in court and my lawyer turned behind me um, at the end of the ruling and said, oh, Nick, were you making a funny noise? Was, I was hyperventilating through just sheer um, sort of panic and, and anxiety. So uh, it's, yeah, it's been a long, long time, uh, a long process and, and still really coming to terms with the, the judgment. Yeah, I must admit, I found myself sort of thinking when I watched, well, watched you on the kind of the steps of the court afterwards and then on Nine's kind of 60 Minutes program on the Sunday afterwards, um, you looked absolutely shattered. And that was even with the benefit of makeup by the time it came to 60 minutes, I guess. Yeah, I mean, a friend of mine put it slightly differently. He said, geez, you looked absolutely cooked. Uh, but I think these things are stressful. Um, and to, no one wants to be sued for anything in, in any walk of life. But defamation litigation is pretty taxing. It's very unfriendly to journalists. Uh, it's a miracle that we won this case because the law is geared to favour applicants. It's geared to favour rich people suing journalists. That there's un- it's unquestionable. That's the fact. Um, you know, the New York Times calls Sydney the defamation capital of the world. Uh, and uh, knowing that the weight of law and precedent is against you, and knowing how hard it is to prove war crimes in a civil court, um, it, you know, it, it was it was un- unbelievably stressful. And and it meant to, to actually contest this case, we had to. I literally had to keep digging for evidence and information. We could never rest. And what won us the case was a number of core things. I mean, number one, it was brave SAS soldiers who stood up in court and told the truth. And the amount of trauma they've been through is just horrific. 
Now, my, my experience is trifling compared to theirs. They fought, they fought overseas, they went to war and they fought bravely and they came back and had to wage a, a courtroom battle against their old comrade. And they did so with great moral courage, but some of them really went through the ringer. Um, the amount of stress that they went through was, is extraordinary. But for us to win the case, we had, we had to keep finding evidence, like never stop fighting. And it meant uh, finding that those USBs that Ben Robert Smith buried in his pink kid's lunchbox in his backyard, it meant uncovering the fact that he poured petrol on his laptop and set it on fire. It meant figuring out that it was a private investigator who'd sent threatening letters to one of our witnesses on behalf of Ben Robert Smith. It was piecing all these things together. And that allowed us to, to put to the court evidence which the judge could view and say, yeah, Ben Robert Smith is a liar and uh, he's lying and covering up something. What is that something? It's war crimes. Well, I suppose uh, this was one of the things which which I guess if I took sort of small comfort from just the sheer, and hey, look, I've been through the pain of a couple of defamation cases myself, but certainly nothing at this sort of scale, but just the sheer distraction and waste of your time. But I suppose if there is a silver lining from it, it is the fact that having to focus on it, you you did bring to light new facts that, that I guess may might not have come out otherwise. I think Ben Robert Smith and I think his his counsel and his lawyers, so he he's he was backed by a very well known media law firm, Mark O'Brien Legal. You know, I think they've got a very established reputation as being highly aggressive litigants. Uh, that revel in, in suing journalists, and they've been very successful in doing so with you know the, the defamation law in Australia favouring people who, who launch defamation suits. Whether it was their very poor advice uh, or whether it was Robert Smith's very, very poor instructions and failure to take uh, good, good advice, uh, but they never expected us to muster the case that we did, uh, and they never expected us to... to yeah, our, our defamation, our media lawyers describe um, playing them at their own game. All right, they're going to throw everything at us. We're going to throw everything at you. We will not rest. Uh, and it, that should have become very apparent to Mark O'Brien and that legal team that we were going to very strategically and very aggressively fight this case and bring as much strong evidence to court as, as possible. Uh, and um, in doing that, I think we've really now reminded people out there that Journalists can win court cases uh, and to sue if you've done the wrong thing is a hugely risky undertaking. And ultimately, Ben Robert Smith today is far more likely to be criminally charged than he was prior to the defamation suit that he brought. When you think about that, that is an extraordinary set of circumstances. It reflects extremely poorly on his judgment. Uh, it raises significant questions about the standard of legal advice he was getting. You know, whether that legal advice was communicated appropriately and strongly, I, I don't know. Only Ben Robert Smith knows that. But you can't, I mean, imagine having a, being a legal firm, a media legal firm, and having a client now who's more likely to end up in jail than before because of the defamation suit he's brought. It's just stunning. Now, one of the, the, the points you just made is even on the day, even having sat through all the evidence and having a, a sense of where, where the logic was probably going, going to go on the day, you, 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 you couldn't be entirely sure. What would the consequences have been for you, for Nine, for journalism, if it had gone the other way? We certainly weren't sure. And I can tell you, even up until the hours leading up to the judgment, 
keep, keep in mind we waited a year between the trial finishing and judgment. I mean, I was asking our barristers and lawyers, what do you reckon? What do you think? What do you reckon? What do you think? We knew that the evidence we'd brought to the court was very powerful, but the judge didn't never, like, it was nothing he gave away. I mean, the, the most emotive he was was the occasional arched eyebrow. Now, for me, that's the justice system working where both parties sit there going, you know, often you go to court and you hear, oh, so-and-so's, the judge is on their side, the judge is on our side. I had no idea where this judge, what this judge thought and where he sat. He, he gave it zero away. It was quite quite amazing, actually. He'd be the most tremendous poker player. Had we lost the case, uh, it would have been disastrous. Uh, I, I, sh I only can confront that question properly now, having won the case, because I think mentally I, I probably wouldn't have, have dealt with uh, ruminating too much about losing it. I think we would have lost our reputations. I think there's every chance we would have lost our careers. Can you imagine what elements of the tabloid right-wing press would have done to us? You know, it would have, it would have been an annihilation of us. Um, uh, I can, I, there's no doubt about that. Um, and perhaps rightly so, you know, perhaps uh, um, Ben Robert Smith would, would have been vindicated himself. Uh, it would have been an appalling, let's say rightly so. Uh, I, may, I must qualify that. Yeah, we knew the evidence and the, the information we'd found that we knew that Ben Robertsworth had committed war crimes. Nevertheless, the court system requires us to prove it. And that's extremely difficult. Uh, it would have been shocking for investigative journalism. I think investigative journalism around the country would have suffered greatly, not just in our newsrooms, but the ABC and News Limited. And, and you know, the sad thing about what Kerry Stokes has done is he was making journalism harder for everybody uh, in the country. And I I'd watch his own reporters cover the case. And this is the thing. The reporters at Seven West Media did a magnificent job. I mean, Chris Reason was a reporter for much of it. And I'd watch his stuff and go, wow, you, you're a pro. Like, you're a journalist I'd be proud to be. And yet the owner of your, the majority owner of your company and the person who controls Seven West Media is backing really what is an attack on investigative journalism. And if he's successful, it's going to have resounding implications. So journalists all over the country would have struggled to keep doing very difficult investigative journalism in light of our failure if we had failed. The future of the City Morning Herald and the Age, I shudder to think, it would have hurt our mastheads. And, you know, one of my executives said that to me afterwards. He said it was, I was really worried about what, what he would have done to these mastheads with storied reputations over 100 years. But the fact that we've won now, it's it's enshrined our mastheads for what they stand for, which is good, hard, solid truth-telling and journalism. And we care about journalism. Um, at um, Unfortunately, it's such a toxic environment, the media now, and uh, nine newspapers is almost said with a sneer by some people in the, in the industry. Uh, but you know, the Age and the Sydney Morning Herald uh, are absolutely devoted to journalism and, and the public interest. We don't run commercial agendas we don't we're not attack dogs to satisfy a political urge uh, we care about good journalism and that's what we that's what our stories were about uh, and to have that vindicated in such powerful fashion is a resounding reminder i think to the public that that's what the city morning herald and the age stand for i'm uh, i'm currently in the uk on the plane across a few days back i i had a many many hours to kill so I had a bit of a triple bill. I watched um, She Said, which was about the New York Times investigation into Harvey Weinstein, Spotlight, which was Catholic Church abuse, Boston Globe, and All the President's Men, 
Back Washington Post, Woodward, Benstein, Watergate. And I, I, hey, look, it's actually quite a good way of spending, spending a flight. But something I noticed when I was watching Woodward and Bernstein is that, that there's a shot, a, a kind of crane shot from up above of the two of them working away, I think, in the Library of Congress. And then I glimpsed in the 60 Minutes episode um, you and Chris Masters walking into the State Library of New South Wales. And I wondered, was was that shot inspired from where I've just made the connection from? Only a super film nerd would ask that question, Tim, very revealing of oneself. <laughs> uh, no, listen, I think we, we, we filmed it there because it's a, it's a wonderful site and, yeah, we're trying to capture the essence. Uh, there's history around us and, and part of this is understanding military history. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was it was a great um, setting. I, I doubt Woodward and Bernstein spent much time at the library, and me and Chris didn't spend much time at the library uh, either. I mean, ultimately, we we did our works our work in hotel lobbies and on planes and in in pubs and cafes. Um, uh, nowhere uh, as quiet and um, genteel as a as a esteemed grand state library, I'm afraid. Um, uh, I can't watch those films you mentioned anymore because I find them too stressful. It reminds me too much of my own job. Seriously, I was trying to watch She Said and I was like, I can't do it. It's watching the journalists sort of, you know, try to find the truth and overcome our obstacles. It's like I've been through that too much and it's too difficult to watch. Well, I suppose I think people just most wonder. Well, I think you, you, you definitely find anyone who's not a journalist always asks this question, but just that thing of how do you actually go about finding a fact that somebody doesn't want you to find out? Um, what what do you think people don't understand about investigative journalism? I think it's, it's highly romanticised, uh, even by journalists themselves. But ultimately, um, uh, it, it is, and when the films get it right, you can you know, spotlight's particularly good. You know, it is like slog. It is getting the phone book and looking up, you know, looking for your victims are Smith or your whistleblowers are Smith and you go through every Smith in the book and you knock on their doors and call them. Um, you know, the amount of times I've sat in the electorate office going through the electoral roll to find a person and you find seven people with that surname, you call them all, that's the job. It's hanging outside courtrooms. It's convincing, you know, backbenchers to talk to you. Uh, now, that, 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 so part of it is, is that slog of, of the information search and another significant part is relationship building. So, you know, you... Rule number one of Australian journalism, don't be a dickhead. Um, there's so many journalists who don't listen. They just talk at people. or They're, they're the experts of their subject matter and, and they don't uh, – they, they, I mean, a, a friend of mine um, who's a very fine journalist has a great, a great line where he – this is John Sylvester of the age. He returns to the office after interviewing the Chief Commissioner of Police. So John Sylvester's been a crime reporter for 45 years. He is the doyen of crime reporting in Australia, a living legend. He comes back to the office after interviewing the, the police chief commissioner and he says, oh, how was the interview, John? He says, it went for an hour. It was, a, it, was a, it was tough, actually. I only got one good quote and I said it. Um, and uh, great line, but I mean, you know, journalists not listening. So listening and engaging with your subject because they're the ones who hold the information. They're the carriers of the secrets. They're the experts. We're, we're simply there to convey what they hold to our, our audience. So knowing how to deal with people and then understanding institutions and the way power operates. And over time, you get a feel for that. You know, you lose. We, 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 I think lots of people go into the world and journalism with a, a rosy view of corporate Australia. For instance, we say, well, if you're a CFO on a listed company, 
you must be a pretty good good person. Uh, there's there's got to be. There's all the rules of that a listed company must adhere to. There's the significant corporate governance. There's the Corporations Act. But when you really start kicking the tires of corporate Australia, it's an ugly place. And you understand how power and money works. When you get it close up to politics, you know, similarly, it's it's an ugly, um, vicious place. You understand that that system, and you've got to operate within that system. Uh, that those systems of power, and understand how how power and money shapes that dynamic and once you get that if you combine that with good people skills and you combine that with a hard slog then you'll be you'll be a great journalist now i accept what you say about it being over dramatized or over romanticized um but i also find myself wondering uh, has anyone from nine or stan raised the question yet of creating some sort of dramatization of the process uh, it's the most magnificent story and i'll just put that question i'll, I'll uh as um, as Arthur Moses, uh, the senior counsel for Robert Smith, would say repeatedly to our witnesses in the box, I'll get back to that. Um, he never would get back to that. Uh, I'm not sure why he said it. I think it was a way of trying to um, confuse the witness or, or get them to fear a question down the track. But I'll get back to that. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, um, uh, something you've, you, you've, you've touched on a bit was the sort of the tribalism of seven versus nine and the fact that Kerry Stokes, the proprietor of Seven West Media, um, in the end personally, but funded um, Ben Robert Smith's case. Um, what, what did you make of his involvement in the legal case in that way? I mean, that, that tribalism, before I get to Stokes, is a really interesting one. Every Channel 7 journalist I've met is an absolutely decent, lovely operator. And, you know, the, the sad thing about the media is most journalists will want and re- appreciate that we're all journalists. Now, I've had people from News Limited dealt, who have aspects, dealing with aspects of the case, um, deal with me. They're absolutely professional and I respect them immensely. Um, I, I've read... You know, I've read the copy of um, uh, of a couple of. I mean, I, I fear to even name drop them because it looked like that. I've, um, you know, I've said someone from New Zealand said, "Oh, you're trying to shoot me if you compliment me." Um, coming from from nine, but you know, they're, they're they're proficient operators. Some of our biggest sources about Ben Robert Smith were Channel Seven reporters who'd worked worked for him, and Channel Seven staff. You no know, good people doing a, a tough job, often an underpaid job. Uh, and you know that that's that's what I feel on on the ground. But I also uh, you know I'm not blind to that tribalism, that competitiveness at the at the top of the tree, and it exists in all in all companies. You know the ABC is at war with uh, the commercial media is at war with the ABC when the commercial media is at war with itself, and everyone is you know is fighting. And, and that partly um, that's part of a function of there being simply some unpleasant people. Uh, but also, it's it's that commercial reality because we're fighting for our, our commercial lives. There's a tough environment out there. There's a limited ad ad market. Uh, there are fierce contests for sporting rights, etc. Um, and uh, you know, we're, we're, there is literally commercial war at, at, at play, and and that's that's a part of that scenario as well. And I guess you you also. I, I guess have your 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 foot in journalism outside of nine as well in that you're I think at the moment vice president of the Melbourne Press Club. Um, so I suppose maybe sort of wearing that hat. Um, what what reforms would you like to see of defamation law? I've just, I've just stepped down from the Press Club board actually, but I, I was the president for a couple of years and then the vice president. Uh, they need to update their website in that case. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great a great example of where the media can work together really well. 
you know, and, and I was at the boardroom with an executive from News Limited with a, a senior journalist from, um, you know, that representatives from 10, 7, etc. or the Herald Sun. We all got along really well and we all had a, a singular aim in mind. And one of those aims was about reforming defamation law. Uh, it's, it's sustain on the public interest in Australia and the ability for Australians to access public interest journalism. You know, right, right now there's a bunch of cases we are fighting where you, know, you, you report that your podcast is um, average and uh, you'll say in the court, well, while the journalist said that it was average, the imputation, the meaning hidden in that because of the sinister music and because of what someone sort of hinted at was that we are engaged in a conspiracy to send aliens to the moon and a judge if they a judge might buy that and say actually i i could there was there's a little hint of that in there so that imputation may have arisen and therefore to to combat this case i'll need to prove that you're engaged in an alien conspiracy and i'll say hang on it's ridiculous i never said that but I've got to prove that. Now, this is a ridiculously extreme example, but it's making the point because that's what happens in our cases. We literally, sometimes I've, I've been sued for an imputation that's said to arise and I've said language in the story to counter that imputation. The classic being, we're not saying Tim Burroughs is a criminal. We'll say that in, in the story. There's no suggestion, and but you still are accused of the imputation said to arise that we're saying you are a criminal. You say, hang on, I didn't even say that. In fact, I said counter to that. Uh, so that's a real problem, I think. Um, uh, now, there's been reform, some reform to make the laws less hostile, but it's got to go a lot further. And, and at its core, it's need, there needs to be a public interest, a proper public interest test. At the moment, we do have um, a new uh, public interest type clause that is yet to be tested and, and understood in law. We'll see, we'll see how that plays out, but I don't think it's going to go far enough. And why do we need it? It's not because journalists deserve some sort of special protection. It's because rich, powerful people are getting up to no good and the public deserves to know what, what they're doing. And journalism is an imprecise uh, practice. But if we practice it with immense thoroughness, an exhaustive approach with a, a mind on only what is in the public interest, not, as what is, not, not of what is, is of interest to the public, what is in the public interest, um, then there should be some sort of protection if we've done our job properly, thoroughly, and with that public ideal in mind. And at the moment, there's not. Something else I'm interested in is the sort of investigative partnerships where more than one journalist will, works on something. And I, you know, you, you for, for a long time, you shared bylines with Richard Baker, obviously shared bylines with Chris Masters on this one. Um, how does it help that sort of reporting partnership? Do, do do you actually see two people getting more than twice as much done? You know, what's what's the dynamic? Or is it just to keep one person going when the other one's kind of, you know, hitting a brick wall or whatever? No, listen, if, if it's never to keep one person going if one's hitting a brick wall because that would lead to a, a pretty unfriendly, unhappy relationship. You've got to both be lifting lifting the weights at the same time. Um, well, what, what the real benefit, I mean, there's a couple, but, Number one, you know, journalism done by the, the Lone Ranger is dangerous because you are always infected by your unconscious bias and your partner can actually look at that and say, no, you know, you're leaping over here or you're, you're we, we have to double check this 
what you say is a fact. Let's. So you've got that person. It's almost like the you know the devil in on your shoulder saying, and, and, the, and the angel. You know, you're balancing out. Have you done this? Have you done that? No, do this, do that, do this. No, no, you must do that. And 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 that's that's going to make the journalism better. They bring to the 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 room their court their their contacts book. You know, suddenly you've doubled the amount of contacts you have. You might have pissed off politician X, but they might not have, and they can make the phone call that you can't. Uh, it's also when the going gets tough. You know, when you get sued, you've got each other's backs. And you know, Chris Masters and I endured. Um, a very difficult process, and we were there for each other throughout that process, that court process. Not to say there weren't uh, tension in the relationship. You know, we, we're two very stubborn journalists with um, very different ways of, of reporting on things, and there was tension, and, and there is tension, and there will be tension. Yet, you know, the camaraderie and him having my back and my having his back and, and us applying our different ways of doing journalism was so effective, so powerful. And, and it's, you know, I think journalism is best done in partnership for all those reasons. And um, during your career, have you had mentors? Well, Chris Masters was one of them. Uh, yeah, I was his researcher back in 2003 or four uh, at Four Quarters. Um, and later he helped produce a, a program that I reported at Four Quarters. Uh, so absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the book, my book, Crossing the Line, um, talks about Michael Gordon, a, you know, a really amazing journalist who died very suddenly during an ocean swim. He was an absolute mentor of mine and a, and a very dear friend. And you need, you know, you need mentors. Every journalist needs a champion in the newsroom. And frankly, anyone in, our, anyone in the media industry, you need a champion in, in the executive. You know, if you're mid-career um, and you want to get along in sales or uh, advertising or journalism, or, you, you've got to have someone in the C-suite who's got your back. Um, and who believes in you and who's going to champion what you do. Uh, and and I've, I've, I'm lucky enough to have, to have a couple of those in our business. It feels like this case is, well, hey, look, it's a punctuation mark in your career, presumably a semicolon, but um, have, you, have you got the, the energy to carry on doing this again and again, or are you at a point where it's time to go in a different direction? What are you, what are you thinking from here? Unfortunately, I'm like a neurotic, sort of anxious um, ball of energy most of the time. So it's journalism suits me, um, and it suits my personality. And uh, you know, I don't. My my brain's always ticking. So I think I'm going to keep applying it to investigative journalism. I found something I'm, I'm I love to do, and I'm good at it. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stress, uh, uh, and I think I guess what I'm coming to terms with is I, I've I've used to think I thrived in that stressful situation. Like people have said, I can't believe you do what you do, and um, you know, you've got a bunch of defamation cases and a bunch of death threats and a bunch of unpleasant things happening at any one time. And, you know, like I'd be thinking, yeah, it's, I, I, I feed off that adrenaline and that um, anxiety and that. I think as I get older, I, I realise it's come at a cost. Um, and, you know, I'm a, I think the risk of burnout is great. And I think uh, you've got to look after yourself. So, you know, I, I swim. Um, three, four times a week now. I've, I've, I've started seeing a psychologist as well to, to just talk about that, you know, why I've... Because what I've found is when I when nothing's happening, like when you got to go get the shopping on Sunday morning, you can feel quite irritated because you're not... There's not a million things happening at the one time. Uh, so dealing with the banality of normal life becomes in itself an irritant because you're not doing a press conference or fielding a, a defamation threat from Mark O'Brien or on the phone to a whistleblower. 
So you got to, I want to like you, I want to live a normal life as well. So it's, it's trying to figure out how to do that um, without giving away what makes me a, uh, an investigative journalist, what makes me tick. Well, um, final question. This is a question we ask all of our guests, although it, it feels slightly more loaded asking this of you. Um, what would your critics say about you and what would your supporters say about you? Uh, my critics, it's funny, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, my, my critics would say he's a relentless dog at a bone who is just won't let me alone, won't give up. Uh, and yeah, we'll pursue something to the nth degree to, to their detriment, to his detriment. Um, and my supporters would say exactly the same thing. (laughs) Well, there are plenty more potential legal issues around this case. So my advice for anyone listening to this is to get your copy of the book while you can. Nick, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Today's podcast was edited by Abe's Audio. More soon. Toodle pip. Unmade. Podcast edit by Abe's Audio.